The following message is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us at 11 a.m. on Sundays. You can visit us online at orchardbible.org. I'm reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 4. For our scripture reading, I'm going to start at verse 9. This is the word of God. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in high honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless, when persecuted, we endure, when slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Would you please uh, bow your heads in prayer with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word this morning that comes to us through the Apostle Paul. We pray that it would land squarely on our hearts this morning, that we would not only learn, uh, but the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened to see your son Jesus more clearly and that our lives might be changed as a result of it. We thank you for your word. Amen. You may be seated. Well, we're continuing our series in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 uh, this morning. And if you'll recall, the church in Corinth was bickering. They were fighting over who was the better teacher. Was it Paul or Apollos or was it Cephas, uh, Peter? They were aligning themselves even underneath these different teachers and um, like they might do with orators in the public square, kind of fighting over who was the better speaker. And it led to disunity. Now, the Corinthians had written to Paul, and they had asked about sexual ethics. They had asked about church order. They had asked about uh, spiritual gifts. And Paul eventually will answer those questions. But Paul, this is, I think, very instructive. Paul starts his letter not by addressing those questions, but by addressing their disunity. Evidently, he felt it was so critical this issue of disunity in Corinth, that the first 25%, the first four chapters of this book of 1 Corinthians is dedicated to this topic. He knew that their disunity was a function of both their pride and their arrogance, but it was also a result of, of the surrounding culture. The surrounding culture influenced the Corinthians' behavior. And that's true of all people at all times. To one degree or another, we are a product of our nature and our surroundings. Let me just give you an illustration of what I mean. See, there, there are these two fish that are swimming along in the ocean. And they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way. He nods at them and says, Morning, boys. How's the water? The two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually, one of them looks over at the other and says, What's water? Just like these two young fish didn't recognize what they were swimming in, the Corinthians may not have understood the undertow of their own culture. And Paul set about to correct it through his counsel, and then by calling them to live a cruciform life. 
But in order to make better sense of what Paul is getting at, we need to understand Corinth better. So if you look at your outline this morning, our first point, the cultural undercurrents in Corinth. Our second point will be uh, Paul's corrective counsel. And then our last, before application, will be Paul's call to a cruciform life. But first, let's look at our cultural undercurrents in Corinth. Now, there's just three things for you note takers. There's three things in Corinth I want to highlight for you this morning. First, the uniqueness of the city due to its geography and culture. Second, the importance of public speaking in Corinth. And lastly, the social status of what would be a typical church member in Corinth. So first, the uniqueness of the city. Now, just as a reminder, Corinth was a center of trade, and that's because it's set on this little strip of land about two and a half miles wide uh, called an isthmus between two bodies of water. And if sailors were to take and drop off their load and carry it across that two and a half miles, they could actually cut up to six days of their journey uh, by going that way. Um, so it was, a, it was a, because of this, it was a center for trade. And also because of this, it was a, a kind of a cultural mix of, of Greco-Greek, of Roman, of Egyptian, of Eastern, uh, kind of influences in this, in this city. It was really, in a lot of ways, a cultural melting pot. And it's believed to have been about seventy to 80,000 people lived there during the time of Paul. So to give you a sense of how that compares to Littleton, uh, Littleton's about 45,000 people. So really not too much larger than the city of Littleton. Corinth embraced a culture, and part of this kind of melting pot, Corinth embraced a culture where Ben Witherington says, quote, public recognition was often more important than facts, and where the worst thing that could happen was for one's reputation to be publicly tarnished. Throughout the city, archaeologists have found what are called inscriptions. These are, these are words or phrases that are chiseled into marble, or maybe they were formed into to pottery. Some were simply names like an ancient version of monogramming. Others were quite a bit more ornate and told of how a great warrior or nobleman had accomplished this or that. Witherington goes on to say, quote, All sorts of Corinthians, even slaves, are mentioned in inscriptions, often paid for and erected by and for themselves. They, they, they describe their contributions to building projects or, or their status in clubs. The number of such inscriptions is staggering. Corinth was a city where public boasting and self-promotion had become an art form. So that's an important thing to understand, the first important thing. The second is the importance of public speaking. Now you might be asking why, but I think this ties back very clearly to the disunity about who was the better speaker. Who was better? Was it Paul? Was it Cephas? Was it Apollos? Corinth was a place where public speaking was an art form and even entertainment. You know, we turn on the TV to watch a movie or a game. In 50 AD Corinth or 30 AD Corinth, people turned out in droves to hear great speakers make arguments. And then they would judge them on their persuasiveness and their rhetorical skill. But over time, persuasion became less important. And the speaking itself uh, became the thing. They would talk about um, the importance of a flea. Or the shamefulness of a bald man's head. I'm, I'm sorry, all you bald guys. But this is what they would talk about. So it wasn't necessarily about the depth, but about the skill 
of the speaker. Skillful public speaking, both entertaining, winning, with both entertaining and winning arguments, really was important in Corinth. So that's the importance of public speaking. And then lastly, I just want to talk for a minute about the social status. Paul, of the, of the church member, the average church member in Corinth, Paul gives us some insight here. Um, in verse, uh, chapter 1 of verse 26, this is what he says. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. So these, these poor folks, without any standing in the world, without any status or power or wisdom, were made sons and daughters of the king, the Lord Most High. They were reveling in their newfound identity, but as we'll see, they would missed the mark on what that meant to be identified with Jesus and as a son of the king. But put yourself in the shoes of a Corinthian, a church member at Corinth here. You live in a very wealthy city, but you don't have much money yourself. There are many powerful people passing through the streets, but you are a slave, effectively unseen. As you walk to the market to buy food for your master's household, you see inscriptions in the street and above doors proclaiming the accomplishments of of warriors and and noblemen and freedmen. But you you have no means to proclaim your accomplishments, whether they be real or imagined. You look forward to the great speaker coming to the public square that evening. You've heard that his speaking exceeds that of every other. It will be important for you to be there, to be seen, to hear his words, and to be associated with them through hearing them. In fact, it will be a way for you to establish yourself as wise and learned and cultured. If you can repeat his sayings and defend him as the best among all the speakers. These are the cultural undercurrents that you would have been swimming in had you been in Corinth at this time. They're strong and and they pull you away from this new assembly that you've been meeting with that worships a man named Jesus. So let's look then at Paul's corrective counsel. We have that background. I'll read verses 1 and 2, and I just would ask you, if you have the scriptures open in front of you, just please follow along in your own Bibles. Verses 1 and 2. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Verses 1 and 2 are the third of three illustrations that Paul uses to describe himself and others. The first two are in chapter 3. We covered those the last two weeks. It's where Paul compares the apostles to to farmers and to builders, building on the foundation of Jesus. In verses 1 and 2, he uses a new image, the image of a household. He calls himself and his co-workers servants and stewards, and it would have been a very familiar image to many of the uh, church members in Corinth. Many of them would have been servants and stewards in someone else's household, taking care of someone else's things, carrying out the orders of their master. So now they hear Paul say, I'm a servant of God. I'm a steward in his household. But let's dig into those words a little bit more. First, servant. Now there's two words that are commonly used for servant. The one you're probably familiar with is diakonos or deacon, which is where, where we get the word deacon from. But that's actually not the word that Paul uses here. 
the word that he uses here is huperetes. It's a word that's quite a bit more powerful in its imagery. It literally means under rower. Now, if you're like me and the first time you heard that word, you were thinking about the really small guy on the crew team. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about the person who's the slave at the bottom of the ship pulling on an oar. This is the under rower, literally at the bottom of a three-level ship pulling away at an oar. They're pulling away in miserable conditions, without any rest, and in damp darkness. Paul is saying, this this under rower, this is how I regard myself in relationship to the kingdom of God. I am an under rower. You want me to be big time. You want me to be special. I'm an under rower in the kingdom of God. I'm the least of all of the people that are on this ship on their way to heaven. But he also calls himself a steward. You might think of a steward like a butler. This is someone who oversees the affairs of the household, makes sure that the orders of the day are are executed. A steward is one who has the full faith and confidence of the owner of the house because they are faithful. They are faithful. That's what he says in verse 2. Our theme this year is faithfulness, faithful in the fire. And Paul says that a good steward is a faithful steward. This is like an employee that a business owner can leave for a month and know, absolutely know, that when they come back after a month, things are going to be better than when they left them. They know, that business owner knows that that steward is going to be a faithful steward. And this is our call. It's what he says right here. Be faithful to the mysteries of Christ. Now, the word mystery does not refer to something puzzling or difficult to grasp. That's not the mysteries that we're talking about here. But it's something that was previously hidden and is now revealed. So what are those mysteries? Well, there there are several, the plural here of mysteries. But primarily, it is the good news of Jesus' death. Believers are stewards. We are caretakers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have been trusted to both maintain and to reveal it. Paul says the apostles are stewards of his message, and his point is this. This is really important, and I think it's profound. Even though they are leaders, they don't own the message of the gospel. They only care for it and carry it out as if they owned it. These men, even though they are leaders, are not at liberty to shape the gospel into something that the Corinthians would like to hear, something that would tickle their ears. In verses 3 through 5, Paul addresses the spirit of judgment in Corinth. Again, we've mentioned this already, but Paul's addressing their lack of unity and they're aligning under these different speakers, and they're making judgments. They're making judgments about these different speakers. Picking up in verse 3, but with me... It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. This is like a, just want to note on judgment here, this is a cross-examination, as if in a courtroom, not a a judgment in terms of a final judgment. Um, And I want you to note, he says that it's a very small thing. He's not concerned about what they think about him. He's not concerned 
about their judgment. In fact, he goes on to even say, even if I were to judge myself, I wouldn't trust it. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. Verse 4, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. Again, even though, this is Paul saying, even though I'm not aware I've done anything wrong, it doesn't really matter. Why? Because it is the Lord who judges me. Verse 5, therefore do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. The Corinthians are judging Paul's oratory skills, and they don't like him. Perhaps he lacks a commanding presence. He's alluded to that in other letters. Maybe he lacks the rhetorical flourishes that they've come to expect from great orders. Whatever the perceived issue, they are aligning underneath different teachers and proclaiming one is better than another. It reminds me, I'm going to use Lars' analogy from two weeks ago, where he shared about... uh, being in elementary school and arguing with his buddies over who was the better baseball player. And they were aligning under different baseball players. And, you know, this, this batter is better than this batter, and this pitcher is better than this pitcher because of such and such. But the funny thing is they were arguing about not even their own skill, but the skill of someone else, is that all these players were on the same team. They are all on the twins. It's the same thing in Corinth. They're fighting about the players who are on the same team. But not only that, they were judging Paul by the standards of the day. How persuasive are are his arguments? How entertaining is he? How weighty are his words? Even more than that, does he conform to what we expect of a great speaker? The Corinthians were bringing their cultural standards into the church, into God's family. And in the course of so doing, they were not only dividing the church... They're judging brothers in the Lord. Paul is saying, no, don't judge me or align under one of the teachers or or anyone else. Align yourself under the Lord as we are, for he is the only judge that matters. Paul continues in verse 6. With his corrective counsel, I have applied all these things. Well, what are all these things? They are the three analogies that Paul has used heretofore. The farmer, the builder, and now the the servant steward. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Puffed up may be translated as arrogant in your version, and it's really just the same idea. The Corinthians were filled with self-importance and with winning, being right, improving others wrong was more important to them than the scriptures themselves. They were bringing in these cultural standards of what makes a person worthy and, and, and honorable, but not applying what Paul has taught them from the scriptures. Paul points them back to the word of God as the standard for their culture. In fact, up to this point, Paul has quoted Old Testament scripture five times. He is demonstrating what it means to not go beyond what God has said. And up until now, I just want you to note, I think Paul has actually been very gentle with his spiritual children in Corinth. 
But in the following verses, he really turns up the volume. He knows that these believers are immature, that they've allowed the surrounding culture to infiltrate their thinking about the church and what it means to be gifted. They're prideful, and it needs to be corrected. In verse 7, he uses a series of three rhetorical questions to turn them upside down. Let's look at those. First, in verse 7, For who sees anything different in you? Answer, no one. No one sees anything different in them. They are recipients of God's grace like every other believer. Nothing in them, and here's the thing, nothing in them was worthy of God's grace, not even an ounce. They're like every other son and daughter of God, adopted by his grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Second, he asks, what did you have that you did not receive? Answer, nothing. Relationship with God was through God. A transformed and transforming life is from God. Every spiritual gift is from God. Nothing that they have received, they did not. Nothing that they have, they did not receive. And then lastly, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did receive it? Answer, no good reason. Paul completely disassembles their facade of esteem and acclaim, where they were trying to get honor and and worth from. But he's not done. Let's look at verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. This is even more withering. But Paul is not out to bludgeon his sheep. He's a surgeon with a scalpel. That doesn't mean it's not painful. If you sense a bit of irony in Paul's words, maybe even some sarcasm, you'd be right. They don't have everything they want. They're not rich. They're not kings. But they're acting like it. It's like the flea. Here's an illustration for you. It's like the flea riding on the back of the elephant. After crossing an old bridge, the flea says to the elephant, did you notice how we shook that bridge? The flea had nothing to do with it. It was all the elephant. And so if we could sum up Paul's corrective counsel, verse 7 does it well. If only the Corinthians would remember that all they have is from the Lord, their arrogance would fade. If they would only remember that who they are is because of God, their self-importance would drift away. Their boasting, instead of in themselves, would be in Christ alone. But if they won't, it will lead to their demise. Let me show you what I mean. Two ducks, this this is the last animal analogy, I promise. (laughs) Two ducks and an egotistical frog have developed a friendship. When their pond dried up, 
The ducks knew they could easily fly to another location. But what of their friend the frog? What would happen to him? Well, finally, they decided to fly with a stick between their two bills with the frog hanging on to that stick by his mouth. All went well until a man looked up and saw them in the sky. What a clever idea, said the man. I wonder who thought of that. I did, said the frog. (laughs) In verses 9 through 13, he points to himself now and the other apostles and ultimately the, the Lord Jesus himself for what a cruciform life looks like. So let's look at uh, the last, or excuse me, the second to last point in your outline, a call to a cruciform life. Now you may be asking what a cruciform or what cruciform means. I didn't invent the word. It's actually been around a long time. Strictly speaking, cruciform means in the shape of a cross. A sword can be cruciform. The floor plans of many Roman Catholic churches are cruciform. But in the context of life, when we say cruciform, we mean a life that is shaped to the character and by the character of the cross. And the character of the cross is that of suffering and sacrifice for the sake of others. So let's, let's look through these verses 9 through 13 and see how Paul describes a cruciform life. What he's calling these Corinthians to. Away from their, their selfish ambition and their immaturity to a cruciform life. Verse 9, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, lying men sentenced to death, because we become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. Now for the Corinthians, this would have likely brought to mind the military parades that victors would, would go on through the cities after a military conquest. At the front, the general and his army leading the parade, but at the back would be the vanquished army, the vanquished enemy in chains, paraded before the entire city. They would be a spectacle, an act of theater for the city to see and look down upon and curse, and ultimately their end would be death. Paul is saying, in comparison to what you would have us apostles be, that is, men of stature and prominence, God has exhibited us, he has made us to be the last of all. Like prisoners of war, paraded about the city, sentenced to death. God has done this. It is his will. It's not ours. Verse 10, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrepute. Again, Paul uses very strong language to describe the Corinthians' self-perception. They think they're wise, that they're strong, that they're honored. And he contrasts it with the apostles who are fools, they're weak, they're in disrepute. And it's in stark contrast to how he had described them in 1 Corinthians 1.26. God chose the Corinthians in spite of their weakness their foolishness and lowness to show the world his own power in Christ. And therefore, all boasting is excluded. Now in verses 11 through 13, Paul concludes his argument. He shows the Corinthians what it means to really be a Christian, to have your world turned upside down. 
to no longer value what the world values, instead to value what God values. First, Paul touches on material circumstances in verse 11. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted, which means to be beaten, literally with fists, and buffeted and homeless. Paul was intimately familiar with physical suffering. In 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 28, he, he catalogs all that he suffered for the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me just read this to you so you can understand the weight and authority of Paul's words here, what he went through. So when he writes these words, you know that he really knows it from experience. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-three through 20, and I'll just read it for you. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys and, listen to this, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, the Jews. Danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. And toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, at hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Paul can speak on what it means to be in need with great authority because he knows it most intimately. And he's trying to drive his point home with these Corinthians. You think to be great, it means to be esteemed. But that's not what greatness in the kingdom of God is. Verse 12, and we we labor, working with our own hands. Now, it'd be easy to cruise right past this as as a modern person in the 21st century. We don't think much about work. We, we know we need to do it. We know God gave it to us. But in Greco-Roman culture, to work with your hands was actually a dishonorable thing. That was really just for slaves. But this is Paul here saying, no, we, we work with our hands. That's who we are. That's what we do. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. This is a laundry list of what it means to suffer with Christ, to take on a cruciform life. We don't return cursing with cursing, persecution with persecution. It's not an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It's when they slap your right cheek, you give them the left. Continuing in verse 13, it's the capstone of Paul's argument here. and his call to a cruciform life. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is what it sounds like. It is the scum on the shower floor, the crud on the bottom of your shoe after you went to the National Western Stock Show, the filth that collects on the rag You used to scrub your floors. It is nasty. It is disgusting. It's gross. It's the capstone, again, to all that Paul has said 
about the cruciform life. If you lose your life for the sake of Christ, don't be surprised if you are treated like off-scouring. Now, before we turn to application, I just want to show you there's another way to think about this word scum. It's another way to think about what it means to be the scum of the world and the refuse of all things. In Greek culture, they would occasionally sacrifice a criminal to their gods to, to ward off calamities. And they used this word scum to describe the victims who were sacrificed to make payment for the people. These men were considered off-scouring. They were not worthy of life. They were only good for sacrifice. They were the most abject and despicable of men. Paul says, that's who we apostles are for the sake of Christ. We are like these sacrifice men, considered lower than low. And that, that may remind you of another man. A man who was sacrificed for his people. The proud and powerful considered him lower than low, not worthy of life. They considered him a criminal, and they killed him. But they didn't know he was there to die for their sake. That his sacrifice was for their souls. Of course, that man is Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus demonstrated most clearly the counter cultural way of Christianity. Think about it. He is the most wise, the source of wisdom itself, but he became as one unwise to save you. He is the most powerful, omnipotent God himself, but he became a man, weak like you. He is the most honored above all things, But for a season, he set aside his glory and honor. He was without sin in every way perfect, but was treated like a common criminal hung up on a cross to die. Jesus became the scum of the world and the refuse of all things to save you. Paul's goal through this colorful language and maybe even some irony and sarcasm, is the Corinthians' heart. He knows that there will never be any real change until they understand the condition of their own hearts, both as a result of their own pride and arrogance and immaturity, but also from the surrounding culture. So let's look at application then for us today. The Corinthians brought in their cultural influences, and when mixed with their immaturity and arrogance, they created a a toxic, disunified mess. And as we look to our own church and to ourselves, what are some of the cultural influences when mixed with our sinful pride, which could create the same toxic stew at Orchard? Maybe you think... You're good to go. No worries here. You're a cultural warrior. You know what the problems are. You don't need to worry about this. No worries here. Well, don't check out. I've got one more story for you. It's about Jonathan Edwards. Edwards is considered one of the greatest Christian thinkers and preachers of the last millennium. He is credited with being the earthly spark 
for the Great Awakening in New England, which was a real Holy Spirit-led revival where thousands professed faith in Jesus Christ. But did you know that Jonathan Edwards had slaves? He and his wife owned a few. Records show that in 1731, he bought a 14-year-old African girl named Venus. Ultimately, he did renounce slavery. But here is a Bible-believing man, widely known for his virtue and his integrity, holding other human beings as property. So if you don't think that the culture can influence your mind and how you think, I have one question for you. How's the water? I want to highlight three ways in which we may be bringing these cultural influences into our lives and as a result into Orchard. Three things, success, individualism, and parenting. Number one, success. The culture says that the way you gain success is through education, career, power, and money. Go to college, not just any college, but a good college. Get a career in the law, medicine, finance, tech, and make money. This is the path to esteem and happiness, or so the world tells us. Now, wise people know that this is a fool's game. New York Times columnist David Brooks writes, American culture today is based upon the premise that career and economic success can lead to fulfillment. He concludes that this is, quote, the central illusion of our time. Now, believers know that this is not what God values, but how do we act? What do our choices actually say? Not that going to college or a successful career or money are bad things. They are most definitely not. But we need to ask ourselves, do we value them more than character? Do we compromise a cruciform life to pursue them? Do we value them because we're swimming in an ocean that considers them the path to success? And then, that's our individual lives. But what about the church? What about orchard? How does that affect the church? What about serving in the church? Do we seek to be known for our serving? Do we seek out those roles, or do we seek out those roles which we think will garner us greater esteem? Instead, what if we look for the areas of greatest need and serve there? What if instead we said, I'm a hooperetes, I'm an under rower. Where do I need to serve? Just put me to the oar, and I'm going to start pulling What would Jesus' church look like if we did that? What would Jesus' church look like if, when deciding uh, to move, instead of considering the quality of the school system first, we considered the location of our church first? What would Jesus' church look like if, instead of automatically accepting the next promotion or raise, we stopped to consider, just stopped to consider how it might impact our family? in our church. We need to be careful of this current of success. We also need to be current of the, careful about the current of individualism. There may be no more American ideal than the rugged individual. The Marlboro man mounted high on his horse, driving a cattle train through the open plains of the untamed west. A man 
who's made his own choices, can't be reined in, and he won't conform to your expectations. Now, for a foreigner, that's what it means to be an American. But for an American, that's what it means to be human. It's in us without even knowing it. The problems with this mentality are many. God made us as individuals. He knows us as individuals. But he never intended us, intended for us to be our own man or woman. Far from it, we are his. Our lives, our time, our resources, our talents are all his. This means that we ought to make decisions in light of this. Instead of avoiding commitment, we accept it. With appropriate boundaries, of course. But, but imagine what Jesus' church would look like if it was filled with believers committed to community with one another and to sharing the gospel with those outside as a priority over their own time. And the third stream, just knowing that we have so many young families in this church who are in the, the trenches, and I'm, Eliza and I are right there with you. We need to look at parenting. What does the world, what does our culture tell us about parenting and what, what parenting should look like, what our, what our children should look like? What do we need to be aware of? What do our choices tell our children about what really matters? Are our choices teaching our children that what they achieve is more important than who they are? Consider sports and kids. There are limitless opportunities to put your kids into sports camps, clinics, leagues, and lessons. As you progress, the commitment to sport grows and grows. One game, it starts at one game a week, then it turns into a couple games a week. And before you know it, you're at weekend-long tournaments three states away. And the next thing you know, you haven't been to church in a month because of kids' sports. What does that tell them about the value of sports versus their walk with God? What about academics or music or art? Whatever the endeavor, if we push to see our kids achieve, if we make it about what they do and not about who they are, what are we telling them about what really matters in life? How will valuing achievement over character, and here's the thing to to ask, how is this, valuing achievement over character, how's it going to impact the church? What will be the impact? And I say will because the fruit of this cultural undercurrent won't be seen until these children are adults. Will the fruit be a, a generation of believers that continues bringing in the surrounding culture? What if instead we emphasize character over competence? What if instead we emphasize the life of of consistency and integrity? What if instead we said, no, the church is more important than whatever your activity is. We're going to go. It's that important. What would Jesus' church look like then? I think we might offer up a compelling alternative for weary and worn-out souls who are tired of being in the race. Just wrap up this morning. I think that's ultimately what God is telling us through this passage. The surrounding culture, and at times even our own hearts, have it all wrong. The way up is not up. It's actually down. 
remember that all you have is from God. Your success, your individuality, your children are all His. More than that, your salvation is His as well. It is from Him and through Him and to Him that you are saved. This upside-down way of life is not only a compelling way to live, it is the only way to really live. And it is only through Jesus that we can put away our immaturity, our arrogance, our pride, and sin, and begin to live as truly human as God has made us to be. When you ask God to save you and forgive you for your sin, and you ask him to change you at the heart level, when you root out your sin, when you set your face against it, and these cultural undercurrents as well, and you replace them with the things of God, with, with humility and justice and forgiveness and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and love, then, then, you will glory in being a servant, a huperetes, an underrower for God's kingdom. Even at the bottom of the boat, just give me the oar. You will glory in being a steward whose only aim is to be faithful to God. And you will glory that you have the privilege of being the scum of the earth for the sake of Jesus. Please stand with me in prayer. Lord God, we thank you this morning. We thank you for this call from your scripture to put aside and lay down our pride and our arrogance, the wrong belief that we think we're in control, that we think that what we have is ours, our lives, our families, our careers, our homes, our relationships, even our salvation is yours. God, teach us to be stewards. Teach us to be servants. Teach us to be your scum. That others might come to know the saving and life-changing power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen.